Testing, testing, testing. Can you hear me? This is Audible Autism. This is the start of part two. In this part, you will get to hear Alex talk about his special interest, as well as differences between YouTube and Twitch as a streamer in terms of the responses he's gotten back. So sit back and enjoy the rest of the interview. Hello, everybody. This is Audible Autism, interesting people and interesting facts. Um, this is Odd Eye here, your host. Today, we have. Alex from the Retro Pals. So, something else I wanted to touch on to as well as streaming. Do you think streaming as an autistic person, in terms of showing off these really strange games or consoles? Recently, you and Danny did a stream about a publisher for the PC Engine Face, which those type of streams <laughs> are sometimes my personal favorites. So, has it opened up? certain things for you or have you been able to look at things differently and also what's it like making videos for youtube as well you know it's funny there is a difference between youtube and twitch and the weirdest thing is is that you would think twitch being the gamer website for gamers would perhaps have a more caustic audience than say youtube but i have gotten so much less shit on Twitch than I have in YouTube comments. Holy crap, YouTube comments can be the most vicious thing alive. While with Twitch, there are definitely assholes and things like that that will come in, but I, I found it easier to avoid them on Twitch for some ungodly reason. Thank God. But um, it's, it's weird. I've always had an interest in quote-unquote bad things like weird bad movies cartoons uh tv shows things like that i like i do not know if the term is correct but i like trashy things i like things that are weird i like public access tv i love very small i love youtube because i love seeing like youtube channels just run by one person just doing all kinds of crazy stuff i like things like that and i have found that doing the stream has made me much I've been finding myself able to build a vocabulary more about why I like these oddball, bizarre things instead of just like, haha, weird thing, funny. It's been more like, I like seeing art that doesn't fit into the mainstream. I like art a lot. Art is one of my favorite things. And I love seeing art that doesn't just map onto mainstream expectations about what something should be. And I've found that by playing a lot of these weirder games, I'm not as into video games as Danny is, but I still enjoy them. And I've found myself more appreciative of the labor and the artists behind a lot of these weird games and seeing the other things they do. And I found myself to be more like, gee, I just. I guess, like I said, I can appreciate where they're coming from, and I have more of a language to describe them. Mm -hmm. 
to describe why I like them instead of just, you know, like, it's weird, I like it. Yeah. And that's that's been very, yeah, good. And also, I think you tend to grow a more genuine appreciation of these things, mm-hmm. arguably because they're so off the beaten path that they're more welcoming of a smaller audience, or because, say, sometimes there's things are supposed to be one size fits all, everybody's appreciative of it, and you just don't connect with it in any you just don't connect with it in any sense yeah but sometimes it's these strange outlier things where people are like wait hang on this is something that's in, not important to you but something you appreciate it's like yes it's not just ha ha look at this it's kind of inept it's like no i can recognize the effort and you can recognize the skill being put into that and you applaud the person for having the gumption to being willing to show it to the world in the state that it's in. Yeah, yeah. And and I like that. I like when artists and people take chances and don't try to make something, like you said, one size fits all because is is easily is easily marketable and as easy as, as that is to sell. I don't get as much out of it as I do out of these really weird games. Like I, I talk a lot about the Mansion of Hidden Souls series and I talk about it a lot because I find that it, it's a weird game, and I can't recommend it to a lot of people, but it's one of the few games that kind of digs into the concept of isolation as something you do when you're traumatized. And it dissects mm-hmm. in, in a very minor ways, in its own way, whether or not that's healthy, whether or not that's something we should be doing, or whether or not these people are really trying to protect themselves from a world that would never understand them, and whether they're not form- and whether they're okay. forming a community of healing. And that it doesn't explicitly say that, but the fact that, at least in the second Mansion of Hidden Souls games, everyone in the Mansion of Hidden Souls is someone with past trauma who is trying to heal... And in Lunacy, the main character, like it was a place for this person who was traumatized to live and not be hurt. I find that to be much more affecting than, say, the latest God of War game where, you know, he's out, he's with the sun. I mean, that can be affecting, but I don't I didn't get much out of that. While with these. Yes. Yes. With these these games with this real crap CGI that are real goofy, I found myself to really get something deeper out of it. I process a lot of my emotions through, through art. And I got, it was wild to me how much I got out of mansion of hidden souls compared to like all these, you know, triple a whatever type games that are considered to be like the be all end all of intellectual video game art. And I think that's, yeah. Just to, for our listeners who have no idea what (laughs) mansions of hidden souls is, and I don't blame them. Yeah. It's a, Sega Saturn point and click adventure game, if I remember right. Yes, it's on. Uh, the first one was on Sega CD, and then there was one on okay. Saturn, and then there was the third game, Lunacy, uh, also known as uh, Torelico. Torelico. I, I can't remember the exact Japanese name, but um, Torico. I think that's it. But yeah, they're about a mansion where people are turned into butterflies where the you have to escape it because you too are going to be turned into a butterfly. Well, the third game is about something else entirely different. Well, there are, there's like butterflies, but it's very different. It's a prequel. It's very, very weird. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting series. It's very much like, I want to say, Seventh Guest, or maybe your audience would be more familiar with like Mist, except that you talk to people and things like that. Okay, thank you for that, just to give a little clarification. Yeah, people being 
turned into butterflies. <laughs> that's that's like something out of an old like Eastern European sixties psychedelic thing. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Thank you. So now, of course, the part which I know sometimes our guests really love is the special interests where you get to talk about the thing that really interests you. So as I know you, you are somebody who I consider to have a very wide range of interests. Yes. As you said, you like trash, you're into collecting ephemera, mm -hmm. you're into animation history, which is something I find interesting myself. You're not so much a gamer, but you also do this, you're into games. But what's the subject that you are interested in that you would like to bring to talk about here? Oh, wow. Well, uh, yeah, it's funny because um, when you, uh, I do have a, wide, a very big wide range of special interests and sometimes i'm well i'm a little embarrassed i'm like i'm like brain can you please specialize because it would make my life easier but currently <laughs> i've noticed that my big interest for nearly all of my life has always been uh theme parks and not just that but the way the inner workings of theme parks the logistics of theme parks and in particular logistics of uh, the safety of theme parks, which in one part I, I'm interested in because I, I have a lot of anxiety and I find that understanding how things works helps alleviate that anxiety or in some cases, like, makes it worse because you're like, oh, this works like crap. Oh, no. But um, that has been my current thing that I, I'm interested in the way that uh, in themed spaces in particular, I think is the, the correct terminology. But I'm interested in the way that spaces uh, are designed to be safe. Like, how do you create spaces? Basically, how do you, how in a theme, the way you would think getting all these people together into this incredibly cramped space where it's hot a lot of the times because people are in theme parks in the summer a lot, where they're puking because they're getting off of roller coasters. They've got screaming kids. It's an extremely tense space. How do you create a space where people can be extremely distressed or and like alleviate some of that so that people, you know, that's that's how conflict and that's how like, you know, a lot of fights happen. You're hot, you're sweaty, your kid's screaming. One little thing, you're about to go off on someone. Someone accidentally rams you with their stroller. You're if you're on edge, you're about to turn around on them and just unload and cause who knows. Like I am shocked that there aren't constant riots and 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 not just riots but like you know stampeding and things at these extremely crowded theme parks why are these people you know why are all these people in this space who are can be very dis distressed being here why are they not freaking out and a lot of that has to do with the way spaces are designed if a space is designed for good crowd control then you're less likely to bump into other people and be distressed by that if the space that you're in has a lot of places to sit if you're tired uh shade a lot of if it has shade so you're not as hot so you, you don't have that level of distress and it's the design choices that uh, public spaces and in particular theme park spaces make to make people less distressed that I find very, very, very interesting. And um, people like, I think it's interesting to just look at the needs that people have in public spaces. They have a need to not have heat strokes. So you're going to need water and shade. They have a need to not be exhausted physically. So you're going to need places to sit. So people are, you know, they naturally need places to sit. They're going to want places, you're going to need places for them to throw away their trash. So where do you put the trash cans that are the most natural for people to flow to and to, you know, put the trash away? I find that sort of design 
Um, I've heard it, it's, it's almost like designing the ergonomics of the way people interact with the space to be very, very interesting. I can see that. It's almost the same sort of function in terms of, well, that's the kind of thing you have to go into building a city or, yeah. or constructing, say, a, a local park or even, say, a building like a, a fitness place, which has like a gym and a swimming pool and things like that. But I think that's especially interesting with theme parks because most people, when they just think of them, they think of the rides and maybe some of the extraneous stuff to do there, but they don't exactly think in terms of the construction of, okay, well, what goes around that ride? Mm -hmm. What does the space look like? How do they emphasize it to make you want to go on a roller coaster or anything of the sort like that? And, you know, the incredible say, round-the-clock management in terms of making sure things are stopped, nothing's broken down, mm-hmm. how they're keeping the kids entertained, sometimes having people, you know, I'm thinking of Disneyland in the, as the most obvious one because they yeah. sometimes have parades or people dressed up as the characters in that environment. So it's definitely more intricate than some people would initially think. Absolutely. And I think the city design thing is particularly what I was thinking about because if you think about it, Well, Disney World, it's Disney through a lot of legislation and a lot of things. Disney literally runs, they run their, they run functions like a city there. It's called, uh, there's a bunch of videos about it. It's called, uh, literally they are in the quote unquote, uh, Walt Disney World is in the quote unquote Reedy Creek District, which is a district that Disney created basically and incorporated. And they were given powers by the government of uh, Florida to basically run their own city functions they run the trash uh things they run uh the fire department disney runs the police department there they they literally have you know full capabilities of running that now i'm not saying whether or not that's good or bad i don't know how i feel about disney having government powers but it i think shows how a lot of theme parks are kind of designed and run to be almost functioning cities you've got you know places to eat places to see you know they they have they're basically cities except for places to live. Well, although at Disney, you can, you know, but that's a whole other thing. And yeah, you have to design that in that way because what you're doing is you're designing a space for an incredibly diverse amount of people to go to and feel comfortable. How do you do that? One interesting thing Disney does is because a lot of gestures in America can be rude in other countries, they're uh, pointing with one finger in a lot of countries and a lot of other cultures can be considered really, really rude and sometimes offensive. Uh, what they do is in uh, Disney parks, they teach you to point in a certain way that is very exclusive to Disney, where you point with two or three fingers. So it's not going to so other people will see it and not have like a weird subconscious reaction of like, why is this cast member being, you know, a dick to me? Even if the person that they call uh, real quick, they call employees of Disneyland uh, and Disney parks cast members because they just do. And so, um, yeah. Sure. And there's a lot of that and there's a lot of training of of course the 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 employees to make sure that the guests are comfortable there's a lot of designing of the spaces to make sure guests are comfortable there's a lot of designing of ride restraints so guests are comfortable actually there's been a big shift in uh roller coaster restraints the the they used to have a lot of roller coasters uh, a lot of them still do but the common restraint that they would have if you are on an inverting or a roller coaster went upside down roller coaster, uh, they, they used to have over the shoulder restraints. And well, those used to be very big and bulky. And because of the way roller coasters go, while they would keep you in, they would also make you bang your head against the restraints, which would be very uncomfortable. 
and people would be very, they would get, you know, sometimes you can get ear injuries and things from that. So that's like, while it's a safety design, it's a safety design that is a painful one and one that people just hate. So recently there have been a lot of changes in the way that uh, roller coasters do over the shoulder restraints and they do restraints and stuff. They kind of now, some roller coasters will have just like these extremely tight, massive lap bars that kind of just seat you in instead of just something over your shoulders because you're not going to hit your head around a bunch and it's going to be a lot more comfortable. And it's interesting the way that something can be seen as safe and needed can end up in the case of the over the shoulder restraints that some roller coasters used to have. They can lead to the safety. It's interesting when the safety restraints themselves can end up leading to injuries like people getting neck and head injuries from banging their head around the sides of the restraints next to them and the, the ways that we need to design around that as well. Right. That's definitely very interesting. I've been to America once. I've been, I went once when I was about 10, 11. And my mom and my aunt and a couple of relatives of mine, we went to Six Flags for the day out. So it's funny thinking this in mind, but I'm curious to ask, do you know if there's any differences in terms of how they manage spaces at different theme parks or is it all relatively the same? It depends. Um, which Six Flags did you go to, if you don't mind me asking? Where my relatives were was based in Connecticut. Okay, okay. So maybe Six Flags New England, probably? Something like that? I think, yeah. Yeah, Six Flags is an interesting chain because, unlike Disney, a lot of their parks, they did not build from the ground up. Most of the parks that are branded as Six Flags parks are older amusement parks that have existed uh, before even Six Flags was a thing, and then they would just buy the park, and then it's part of their brand. It's funny. Most theme parks are owned by four companies. You've got Disney, Universal, Disney owns stuff, Universal owns parks, uh, Six Flags owns parks, and Cedar Fair, who owns Cedar Point, also owns most of the parks. And the way that each company works with their parks is usually very different. Now, theme parks are considered different from Six Flags parks because Six Flags parks are considered amusement parks, which is they're more like the traditional amusement boardwalk style parks in America where there is less, uh, there's not a lot of environmental storytelling. While with the Disney and the Universal parks, there's a lot of focus on designing not just uh, for crowds, but for immersion, designing to make you feel like you're somewhere different, like the Harry Potter world in... Uh, the Universal Parks. Those are designed to really make you feel like you're in uh, Hogwarts or whatever. While at Disney Parks, there's Galaxy's Edge, which is really trying to make you feel like you're at a Star Wars planet. While Six Flags is more of an amusement park, which means that there's a lot less of environmental design to make you feel like you're someplace else and more design for like, well, where can we put down a coaster? Where can we put down, you know, this side or the other? There's less of a focus right. on that. And what's interesting is, is with Six Flags, especially some parks are much more themed than others because some of these parks before Six Flags bought them were kind of like, uh, like Magic Mountain, which is a Six Flags park in California, was originally a wizard themed place with a lot of these really detail-oriented lands and areas. And then when Six Flags bought it, they kind of didn't keep that up and things like that. So yes, other parks like Six Flags, they, they're, Six Flags in particular is kind of known for being a cheaper mm -hmm. park, but I don't think that's necessarily a negative. I just think that it just means that they put more money into like taking, you'll see a lot more ads. You don't feel like if you go to a place at a Six Flags park, you're less likely to feel like you're in a whole new world right, or whatever. You're right. going to feel like... 
some people they look they they look down on that and i know in my earlier enthusiast days i kind of was like oh well all these parks just spend all this money on immersion da, da, da. but now as i get older i'm like who cares and um not just that but i've also noticed and sorry to bring up class again but a lot of that also just seems to be a, a very easy way to I don't know, shit talk parks that are more accessible for people who may not have as much money to spend a hundred dollars for a day at Disneyland. Like, yeah. And I find that in particular, I actually kind of admire what Six Flags does with their budgets because some of their, I've watched some of the, the not parades, but the, the ways that they engage people with costume characters in a lot of the Six Flags parks and stuff. And they just do, they just still have just Bugs Bunny doing the Cupid Shuffle and just people joining him just at random. And it's it's interesting. You, you see more. It feels like the engagement is more authentic. It's less scripted the way that people kind of work with, you know, at Six Flags Parks compared to the big majesty of the of the wild parades at, at like, you know, say uh, the Disney. You know, it's very it's different, but they still have that consideration. Like Six Flags may not have as much, say, you know, money spent into making the buildings look like you're in another world, but they'll still have benches. They'll still have whatchamacallit. They may not be as well designed because they're not hiring like architects who worked on cities. It'll still function and be fine. And they're still not, you know, a lot of this. It's not like a dangerous place to go or anything like that. It's, okay. it's fine. See, this is funny. I'm thinking of it for Britain now because there's, there's a couple theme parks and amusement parks here where I feel like if you live in London, you'll probably recognize these names I'm talking about, which are Alton Towers, Fort Park, Mm. Chessington World of Adventure. Of course, because I live in Europe, we have Legoland over here as well. Mm -hmm. And also, in a way, I'm thinking of sometimes the fun fairs that come through my part of London every summer and how those look by comparison. So you've brought some things to mind. I'm thinking of those places differently now. Yeah, it's it's funny you should bring that up because I've I've been getting into I've I've been watching a lot of uh, a theme park YouTube because I'm stuck at home. And um it's it's interesting you should mention that because I've been interested in that lately, theme parks in the UK. And like America um, a lot of the Merlin uh, Entertainment owns, they own Alton Towers. I know they own, I'm pretty sure they own Chessington. 99% sure they own the Legoland parks as well. And Merlin's interesting because it all—it seems like they are much more of a, a, a point of comparison would be, uh, in America would be Cedar Fair instead of Six Flags, where the parks that they create, at least from what I've seen of Alton Towers, there's definitely some theming, there's storytelling going on through the environments they create. Yeah. Yeah, I can confirm that from my memories of going there and coach trips with relatives and friends. That was definitely the case that there was theming in terms of certain areas of where you was going to and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I really want to go to Alton Towers. I really want to ride Oblivion just because I, okay, a bit of a tangent as I kind of do, but um, what I love about Alton Towers roller coasters is that 
They are all the most depressing themes I have seen in my life, and I kind of love it. In America, the themes to our roller coasters are like, there's at Dollywood, there's a roller coaster where it's themed to like, you're an eagle and you're flying through the air. And in at Disney, you're like, oh, you're on Slinky Dog and you're from Toy Story and you're going through this fun place that Andy built. And then I read the story of Oblivion and they're like, you're on a roller coaster that is run by an evil government organization. <laughs> and, or like Nemesis, where they're like, this coaster is actually a demon from hell and it's going to eat you. And I love that. I know. I love God help me. I love the dystopian feel of a lot of the coasters in Halton Towers. I, I really respect it. And you know, I've noticed that a lot of European theme parks have a lot more, the themes are more depressing. And I kind of like that. Like, um, I'm thinking of the saw roller coaster. I think oh, that's a Thorpe park, which is, you you would never see a coaster like that in America. We like, I think the most quote unquote nihilistic theme coaster we had like that based on a brand was maybe, maybe the Terminator coaster that used to be at Six Flags Magic Mountain. Okay. But that's kind of changed to like, ah, it's an apocalypse theme. But most coasters are just themed to like, ah, you're racing in America or ah, you're you're a bird or whatever. And it just seems like whenever I read about European theme parks, it's just like, ah, the government wants to kill you or, ah, you're chasing a, a being chased by a murderer. And I'm thinking of the ride Hex in particular, I think is what it's called at uh, Alton Towers. That's one that's themed to Alton Towers being cursed, which I love. <laughs> I like that so much of Alton Towers theming is like, this is a place of danger and evil. You will die and it's just like oh my god wow you're really going for it yeah that's and, and i'm thinking of, of of it's not in 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 uh, the uk but there's a park called uh in oh god i'm so sorry if i get this place wrong uh denmark i think uh efteling and a lot of efteling's theming is also kind of i want to say depressing but it's very they have some rides that are very moralistic where it's like i'm thinking in particular of baron something baron 18 whatever it's based on the story of this roller coaster is that this guy went through a cave after he was warned not to go through it by the townspeople and he found gold in the cave, even though the townspeople told him that the cave was haunted and he will die if he goes in there. But he was like, no, I, even though I almost died here, I need to keep mining in this cave no matter what. So he hires the townspeople to mine in the cave and horrible things happen. The, the, the walls drip blood and people die and it's terrible. So uh, the townspeople refuse to mine. And the theme of the roller coaster is that you, the riders of the roller coaster, are miners who have to go into this haunted mine to make money for this guy because no one else in the world will do it because this mine is cursed and i love that that is amazing so the only coaster i can think of in america aside from that terminator coaster that's as bleak as that is there is a small amusement park in pennsylvania called knobles and they have a ride that is themed to a haunted a haunted coal mine that's also kind of themed to the real story of Centralia, Pennsylvania, which is, um, yeah, yeah, it's the 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 city that a lot of the the Silent Hill live action movie was based on. It's a basically a ghost town that used to be a mining town where nobody can live there anymore because the underground coal mines have been on fire for three decades or so, and the fire just never burns out. And there's a theme ride. There's a roller coaster theme to that, and it's just like 
that is amazing to me. I like, I, I don't know if it's like the inner goth in me, but I like when rides are just a little bleak. It's just like, I like feeling the nice, fun happiness of Disney, but sometimes I'm just like, just tell it like it is just, just be a little depressing, you know? <laughs> I have three points I need to make. One, <laughs> mm-hmm. that Centralia themed ride seems bonkers i want to go so bad i can't believe it exists and i actually want to try it for myself two mm-hmm. i think i have four now two i think this conversation will cause certain people to look at like roller coaster tycoon and theme park differently um mm-hmm. three would you count action park as dystopian <laughs> I mean, dystopian in the sense that there is a that if you have enough money and you can and you can like or whatever you can make and you can make the worst, most dangerous rides on earth. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right then. And my last thing I wanted to ask is: um, so, what would you say are your favorite parks? You know, it's that's a great question. There are a lot of parks that I haven't been to a ton of parks. I've been to a lot of the parks in Southern California and I've been to uh, SeaWorld in uh, San Antonio back 2008, but I, I probably wouldn't be going back there. I'm I don't know. I'm I got mixed feelings about SeaWorld parks now that I'm working through, which sucks that they're well designed. But um, I would say it's stereotypical, but I really like the Disney parks. But the reason I really like them is because. Growing up, I, did, I didn't mention it, but um, my my mom is gay. She's lesbian, and that caused obviously being having a lesbian mom in the '90s was not very easy. And it would mean that you know because my mom she dressed very butch, she would get a lot of shit when we would go out. People would just be very weird about seeing a woman like that. People would be transphobic to her, which was very funny because I'm like she's not trans or whatever, and. Um, the one place where we could go where the staff would not give us any shit and the staff would be okay with, you know, gay people around was a uh, Disney land. And that's because Disneyland, especially in the nineties, a lot of people who were queer worked there. It was mm-hmm. kind of considered a place you could work and especially because I was one of the first uh, theme parks to offer same sex partner benefits. So I have a very big soft spot for Disneyland in particular for being a place we could go that I did not have to worry about the employees treating us like crap. Mm -hmm. However, I also feel that like all the discussion about theme parks is very Disney focused and as cool and as neat as Disney is when I'm looking at parks in Europe in particular, I just, I have a lot of parks that I really, really want to go to. Like I really want to go to Europa park, which is a park in Germany that's run by a ride company. It's actually kind of a showcase of their rides, uh, mock rides, but it's also not only is it highly themed, it has it has, you know, in Walt Disney World uh, at Epcot, they have that big uh, geodesic dome. Yes. There's one of those at Europa. Yeah, there's one of those at Europa Park that has a, a roller coaster inside. It's just it's just so much stuff thrown at the wall. But there's a lot of theming and and a lot of things packed. And I think that's really cool. I also really like uh, in America. I hate to be that guy because I kind of like all theme parks, even even the even the ones that are really cheap and kind of crappy. I have a soft spot for all of them, but yeah. I uh, in Southern California there's Knott's Berry Farm, which I used to really love because it was like a really nice theme park that started from this dude's farm turned chicken restaurant turned. Well, no one I have too, but there's too big of a line to the chicken restaurant, so I need to make some 
amusements for people in line, which then the chicken restaurant kind of fell to the wayside as this dude was like, shit, why don't I just make a whole theme park and whatever? <laughs> and I don't know. I hate to be this guy, but there are very few theme parks I feel very negatively about. There are some that aren't run as well as others. There are some okay. that are more run down than others. There are some that are very mismanaged. But overall, I really do appreciate nearly all of them. But if I were to do say my favorites that I, my favorites that I've been to are Disneyland, Universal Studios, and Knott's Berry Farm. My favorites that I haven't been to that I really want to go to is Knobles in Pennsylvania, which is literally one of the old, it's an old style amusement park where it is free admission. There is no, it is free to go in. You just pay per ride and the rides are like, their roller coaster is just, in, most roller coasters at these parks are like maybe 8 to $10 per ride. This one's three. Wow. Food's cheap. It's like it's like the way amusement parks used to be. You can bring your dogs because it's like a literal park. And I want to go to Knobles. It's also the place with the Centralia themed roller coaster. Okay. I want to go there. Uh, and I really, really want to do Alton Towers and Walt Disney World and Europa Park. Those are my favorites that I've never been to, but I am. I gotta go All as right. soon as. Uh, when the virus dies and also I'm given a billion dollars because that's just somehow going to happen, I'm going <laughs> to hit all these parks, baby. Okay. It's going to be wild. What about, um, throwing a bit of a curveball here, mm-hmm. what about that Dolly Parton theme park? You're not interested in going <gasps> to that? Yes, I am. I Thank you for reminding me because it completely slipped my mind. I love Dollywood. Dollywood is actually, uh, Dollywood's interesting because it, it wasn't a park that Dolly built herself or because, of, you know, she's just one woman. Um, but it was a pre-existing park that was uh, called, uh, it was Silver Dollar City Pigeon Forge, which is where she grew up compared to, uh, there's actually another Silver Dollar City uh, up in Branson. And um, what happened was, She's in the 80s. She was doing Dolly Parton was doing really well with her music. And she was like, well, I I want to, you know, because she grew up in Pitch and Forge, which is a tourist town. It's a poor town, Mm -hmm. but it's a tourist town right outside the Smokies. Very interesting history there, too. But I I will tangent too much on that. But um, she uh, she bought the park and she just kind of put her name on it. Uh, She added she was like, I would like more historical stuff about the Smokies and my own personal heritage here. And the people who originally managed the park still manage it, but she has a lot of uh, say into what goes in, the theming she goes for. And it's weird because it's a theme park in, you know, the deep south in, in Tennessee, in the Smoky Mountains, that is not just like a very, it's very Christian. It's a very Christian park. There's a lot of, there's a gospel hall of fame, things like that. It's also a gay tourist destination. It's one of the very few spots where very conservative and gay people can go and there's not a lot of that weird uh it's basically okay and and at one point i know that there was an incident in dollywood where someone was wearing a pro-gay marriage shirt at the at the water park and was told to remove it and the dolly parton herself came down and was like you will not do that gay people are absolutely accepted at my park do not make this do not make this an uncomfortable environment for them they are my biggest boosters and supporters i want you know and i can appreciate that but yeah no it's interesting because dollywood is built in a place like like dolly parton you know she grew up poor and stuff but that was also because the area Mm -hmm. where she grew up it used to have a very big thriving lumber and other industry and artisan industries but due to the national park being built you know national parks people used to live there you know before they kicked everyone out to make a national park and so a lot of those people not having a job they were like well 
bunch of tourists are coming to the park, why don't we just sell them things? Why don't we make food, you know, and, and like we can sell them our traditional art, art, arts and crafts and stuff. And that's right. And that's a whole other thing about God, the fifties, I hillbilly type stereotypes come from people. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I will go, I read a book about it. So um, what was the book called in case listeners would like to know? Oh, there's a book called Gone Dollywood. Uh, if you can find it, I highly recommend it. It goes into the history of the national parks, history of the Smoky Mountains, and the history of Dollywood. It's also a book that kind of d- digs into the contradictions of the South, the contradictions of identity, and presenting your identity, which I found very, very interesting. And it goes into a lot of the American fascination with hillbilly culture versus what is mountain culture. Very good book. It's by a guy named Graham Hope. It's called Gone Dollywood. Cannot recommend it enough. It went into a lot of things I didn't expect it to. And I was really shocked and surprised and and, and delighted by what it went into. Okay. So one last thing on the topic of all the things to do with theme parks. Um, since you brought up theme park YouTube a lot, are there any specific theme park YouTubers that you would recommend people check out if they want to go further? Yes. Oh boy. Sorry. I uh, <laughs> the one autistic trait that I will never get rid of is I do. I my hands will flap when I'm excited, and I am I am trying to get them to calm down right now. So, <laughs> um, yes, the big one that everyone really likes and that I can I really really do recommend because they actually go into a lot of labor history of these parks as well is a uh, defunct land. Uh, by Kevin Perger. Great series. Um, one of the best theme park history YouTubers out there. Uh, if you're lo- interested in the history of European theme parks, um, I really recommend Expedition Theme Park. I love, I love, love, love Expedition Theme Park. They go all in on a lot of um, European parks and histories and things like that. Another theme park YouTuber who I like because they get into the extreme nitty gritty of theme parks. Like uh, they had one thing that was just about how does Disney world do mosquito control? Like, and that's interesting to me because Florida has a lot of mosquitoes, mosquitoes bring malaria and other diseases and you need to control that. So your guests don't die, you know, and he made a video about that. That guy is called Rob plays and he, if you are interested in the very, very, very fine details of theme parks, I cannot recommend him enough. He will find a random niche. Like he did a recent video that was about what was the first monorail in America because Disney claims that their monorail is the first daily operating monorail in America. And he went and he fact checked that and he went down this weird rabbit hole about how we actually kind of don't know what the first monorail in America was because there's so much uh, kind of just clashing historical information so if you're into the weird weird niches of stuff which i maybe your audience will be into that i cannot recommend raw plays enough i think he is the most underrated theme park youtuber oh my god i love him so good shout out to rob plays so um how yes. would you spell his last name plays just to be uh, sure it's, it's it's funny he actually used to be a, a a gaming youtuber which is why he's called rob plays it's like playing a video game and he okay. used to do like let's plays but then he just shifted entirely to theme parks and it's r-o-b-p-l-a-y-s great guy i also recommend just i'm going to give out a couple other shout outs uh if you're into just straight up clickbait listicles that are actually like not full of false information, there's a guy called Theme Park Crazy who does a lot of just like top 10 weird roller coasters. And I actually really, it's clickbaity, it's kind of junk foodie, but I love his stuff. Very fun, okay. very whatever. And 
Anyone else? I just want to make sure, because I, I watch a lot of theme park YouTubers. And I want to make sure I'm shouting out everyone. Uh, I think last but not least is Disney Dan. Disney Dan does a lot of everything, but he does these really interesting histories of costumes at theme parks and how they're designed, how, you know, you'll see all these old pictures of the original Mickey Mouse costumes from Disneyland and they'll look really awful. He goes into why they looked like that, the history of how that happened. Super interesting stuff. Right. Alex, thank you. I think that's incredibly (laughs) enlightening and the listeners will have a lot to chew on there. So, um, Before we wrap this up, how would people, if they're interested in finding out the work you've done or any way to follow you on your further adventures and your interests, how would they go about that? (laughs) Well, um, the stuff that I do that I I like to promote is the stuff I do with uh, Danny. That'd be the Retro Pal stuff. Um, We have a website, which I need to update. Uh, It's uh, retropals.club, and you can get all of our URLs there. Um, you can also find us twitch.tv slash retropals. We stream Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays if we're feeling up to it. Um, but we usually do. You can also find our Twitter account at uh, twitter.com slash retropalshq. And I think, uh, last but not least, we do have a YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash retropals. Uh, if you want to look any of these up they are all on uh retropals.club as well mm-hmm. also you two also have a patreon where people can see youtube videos before you come out and they can vote on what's going to be the subject of the stream on wednesday as such mm-hmm. i'll admit because our listeners are in europe and you're based in the u.s <laughs> the time <laughs> might be might be a problem but you do upload them I know you have a stream archive YouTube where you put them up. So mm-hmm. I feel that's incredibly useful as well, too. Yeah. And our Monday shows in particular, we try to do those at uh, 2 p.m. our time, which is a little bit earlier in the UK and, and Europe and stuff like that. So I think those ones are going to be the easiest to catch. And we don't. Twitch.tv has all of our archives, all of our streams, our archive channel. Mostly we just put the Wednesday streams there, which are, to be fair, those are the ones we really plan out. We talk mm-hmm. ahead of time. We, you know, we hit yes stuff like that so you can catch that there all right and before we forget fridays is where you and danny that's your let your hair down streams because you talk about mascot platformers as well right Mm -hmm. yes yes that is our biggest like it is much more of a party stream it is very much we're very lax we're very loose that is very much more like a stream stream where we're just kind of we're we already cuss a lot we cuss more we're very we're ruder we're very just we're just it's a wild time and uh yeah that that one is at 8 p.m central uh central american time well central texas time not central anyway yeah um well i think that covers everything alex thank you for coming on and dedicating some of your time to doing this i've really enjoyed talking to you and i've really found this interesting and exciting and hopefully our listeners will enjoy this as well so thank you no problem i had a wonderful time this was really fun and i really like getting the opportunity to just talk about this kind of stuff in a way where i'll be honest i don't feel like someone's gonna be like judging me for talking about this kind of stuff so openly you know what i mean all right then i totally understand them that's what we do and that's the whole point of our larger site, just to give promo, the the Autistic Empire, which if you choose to be a part of, there's a forum there and 
you're informed of what we're doing and the goings on there and stuff like that. That's everything for this episode. So till next time, thank you for tuning in. Just wanted to say that you've now come to the end of the interview. It went on a bit longer than I expected, but overall, I think it was a very interesting conversation. And I would like to say thank you to Alex for giving a bit of his time to be interviewed by me. This one was different from usual because it was a two-parter. Hopefully you got a lot out of listening to this one. Thank you. Until next time. If you'd like to stay in touch with us, you can check out our website at www.audibleautism.com for links to things discussed in the episode and for our back archive. You can subscribe to us on most podcast distribution platforms, including iTunes. Just search for Audible Autism. This podcast is part of a larger project, The Autistic Empire, which is aiming to create an autistic community centered around our interests as autistic people. You can check us out at www.autisticempire.com. We post all of Audible Autism's episodes to our Autistic Empire channels, so you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and we're even on Pinterest. Just search Autistic Empire to receive news and updates. We also have a forum where enrolled citizens can discuss the latest episodes and other issues of interest to autistic people, so do check that out as well. If you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us to be on a future episode of Audible Autism, you can always email us at team at audibleautism.com. Thank you for listening.